How much do you think your Twitter account is worth? Oh, man. Uh, it depends on the buyer, right? Like, I think. So this is an entire episode based off of Blake Robbins' old tweets. Blake is a partner at Ludlow Ventures, an early stage firm based in the heart of Detroit. His path to get there is an exceptional story, and Twitter definitely played a major role in that, which is part of the reason that we decided to do this. Hope you enjoy. This is a special episode for a couple of reasons. One, the guest, Blake, welcome to the show. Thank you, thank you. And number two, we're going to try out a new format, try to base an entire episode off of Blake's old tweets. Blake, does that work for you? Yeah, I'm, I'm excited. Okay, we'll just uh, kick things off with this one from July of last year. Not entirely shocking, but the new dream job for kids in America and Europe is becoming a YouTuber. So graph from Andrew Chen, and then also a link to something that you've written on this. Can you talk more about this concept? Yeah, absolutely. I actually saw another tweet about this recently that resonated with me, but it was basically like the concept of becoming a YouTuber is essentially just getting paid to record anything that you're doing in your life. And and that could mean a whole bunch of different things, but the concept of like you just having fun and other people wanting to see that is pretty awesome. And I think it makes a lot of sense. We, at least when I was a kid, I always was like, I want to be a basketball player or an athlete or a movie star or whatever it might be. But the difference for YouTubers is like, you're essentially just watching their careers in front of you. And so like you think about David Dobrik or Mr. Beast or these people who at least I've watched a ton of, you actually are just watching firsthand and, and you can see the entire archive, right? Of like them first starting off and having very little followers and, and not much wealth to then like now today where they're spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on videos and they're hanging out with huge celebrities and yeah I I think it makes a lot of sense that these kids feel much more connected and just people feel much more connected to YouTubers so it naturally feels more aspirational. Yeah absolutely I think a few different places we could take that it's definitely similar to professional sports in that I feel like it's a new American dream and it doesn't really matter where you're from if you are good enough, then people will find you. And I don't know how that ties into what you've seen with 100 Thieves or your really deep expertise in that space. Yeah, I actually think one of the major reasons why gaming in specific is, has created so many big creators and, and influencers and also just celebrities within it is because it feels so obtainable. There's basically like this myth or disillusionment that if you're just play a lot of video games you can be the best and I think if you ask a lot of kids they might not admit it but I think deep down they feel like if they weren't in school and they were playing Fortnite all day they might be able to get to a top level I personally don't think that's true but that illusion really forces a lot of these fans to become really invested because they're just basically living through them and when they go online and play it's very different than like if I went and go like play basketball in my local gym I have no real sense of how good I am like I have no idea how good the people in my gym are but like in video games at least in like Fortnite or League of Legends or whatever it might be you have a real sense 
of where you stand within like the relative rank of everyone else in your region. And when you feel those progression loops, like in, in basketball, you're not going to necessarily know that you're getting better at shooting three point shots. Like you might have had a good day, but overall in, in league or in Fortnite or whatever it might be, they actually just straight up show you like you're getting better and we're placing you against better people. And so it, it probably feels closer to like going to work out every single day and you're like, Oh, this is getting easier. And so like that feels obtainable as well. And that's probably why there's a ton of uh, fitness like creators and influencers as well. Yeah. And then to your point about how specifically in gaming and then also more broadly with popular YouTubers, there's not really this wall between what's going on in their personal life and also what you see as a fan. So I think that ties into this other tweet from just the other day, March 12th, where you said after the adpocalypse, David Dobrik went from making 275K per month for 60 million views to $1,089 a month for 250 million views. Can you (laughs) unpack that for people that are not familiar with what happened? Yeah, absolutely. So I think it was in 2018, right at the beginning of 2018, when Logan Paul had his whole controversy and and whatever else, YouTube basically said like, okay, we need to reevaluate our standards for advertisement because they were serving ads obviously on, on that video and it was incredibly insensitive. And so that basically caused a huge thing called the apocalypse at the time, which was basically every major creator had much more strict guidelines, uh, their content of what they could run ads on. And that in the case of Dave Dobrik, he decided not to change his content because he didn't want to necessarily change uh, the content of the videos at all, like or the format, and he was still getting demonetized. And so, yeah, I mean, for him, he took a huge, huge cut from that revenue that he was making from YouTube. But I actually think this speaks to sort of just a broader trend within YouTube in general, where the biggest creators have platforms now of their audiences. And yes, some are, are family friendly and they get to reap the ben- benefits of that. I think like Mr. Beast has done a really incredible job of towing the line of not getting demonetized on videos and whatever else. But like, so he's probably making a ton from those videos, but this leaves a huge opportunity to figure out how else to to monetize your brand or your audience. And that's where a lot of really amazing opportunities lie. Yeah. So from an individual's perspective, maybe YouTube is not the best place to monetize in the future. Where do you think what types of platforms might be a little more creative friendly? Yeah, I think Twitch and Patreon and these sites on the side where it's basically like just support the creator straight up and pay them X amount of dollars per month to allow them to continue to create content for you. Uh, I think is really interesting and I'm sure YouTube will continue to invest more in here and they do have a support of creator. But I, I think Twitch is a little bit more like I have a different dynamic because of how popular Twitch chat is and having those badges and emotes has a really big part of the the culture on there. I think the bigger opportunity here is when you reach David level, right? Like you're getting amazing brand deals and and whatever else. But I think there is an in-between where you still have a pretty big audience and invested community. You might not be getting huge brand deals, but you still have a pretty hardcore audience and and they'll buy something from you. It's just a matter of like what you want to sell them and figuring out what is on brand. And I think a good example of this is Emma Chamberlain, who is one of the biggest creators right now. She went and actually created a private label coffee company called Chamberlain Coffee. And I have no doubt that that was like wildly successful because it just plays into her brand and her audience so well. 
Uh, I think we see this a lot, mainly like uh, if you look at just beauty uh, influencers and in general, they're typically like leading the curve because they're one of the biggest areas of YouTube. And obviously in, in that world, like private label makeup and, and making their own makeup is a huge opportunity that they've all tapped into. And I think it will be really cool to see what other routes other creators step into. And I think there's actually going to be like this private label or drop shipping type business that that's formed on the side where it's like, Hey, you're a creator. You want to make X for your, for your fans, like pick from this and we'll basically just make that for you and allow you to market that out to your customers. I think right now is a great time to be a creator in general. And, and I've talked with a lot of different people about this, but I think, the the truth is in a world where there's rising customer acquisition costs on Facebook and Google and, and whatever else, like when you actually have an audience and they're willing to pay attention to whatever it is that you're making, I think that's just super unfair advantage for as, as like an entrepreneur and, and the ones that are entrepreneurial minded will be rewarded long-term, right? Like the ones who build businesses around themselves and this goes back to even Nadechat with 100 Thieves back in the day for the esports team is like, when I was first talking with him, a lot of our conversation was around like, do you want to just build your personal YouTube brand and, and just have your channel and do really well for yourself? Or do you want to build something bigger? And yes, there's risk with trying to build something bigger, but it's definitely different than, hey, just continue to build your own YouTube channel and only working on that with a couple people versus, I mean, I think 100 Thieves now is probably 60 plus employees and a bunch of different teams. So they, they definitely are now all working towards one singular vision versus before when it was just Nate Chow working on his own channel by himself, essentially is, is a very different dynamic. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that ties in with your own life. Can you unpack this tweet? I think my career to date can be accurately summarized as punching above my weight, and faking it until I make it. <laughs> when I just look back at, at my career and, and it feels weird to say career because it's like I'm still in the early days <laughs> of it. But I, I think like many others, when you end up in this world, it's, it's always you're surrounded by a ton of really brilliant people and uh, super hardworking people. And for me, like imposter syndrome is, is always something that creeps up where it's just like, okay, like, what am I doing here? Like, I shouldn't be in this room and whatever else. I think for me, when I was first entering into the venture and even just startups in general, it was, it was pretty intimidating because it felt like everyone around me knew more than, than I did. And I just always was like, you know what, I'm just going to like give it my all. And actually, I know you had Eric Jorgensen on a previous podcast, and uh, he's always been like a longtime mentor for me. And I remember one of the first things he ever told me was whoever your first boss is or your first manager is, just make sure that you're optimizing for that person and make sure that they are investing in your career. And when you're given the chance to like step up, really step up. And I, I think in this particular tweet, I think it can be tied to a lot of different stuff. But like I viewed my resume a lot as if it was a portfolio of, of investing, at least in my early days. Like if I didn't have money to invest in companies, then the next best thing I could do is actually invest my time into them. And when I reached out to SpaceX back in the day, I think it was like eight or nine years ago at this point, like they didn't even have a website. Like the, the website was basically just like spacex.com and then it was their logo, <laughs> you know, like there was, there was nothing on there. And for me, like it obviously ended up being an incredible opportunity, but at that time it was a total Hail Mary for myself. When I was reaching out, 
I was like, there's no way I'm going to get this. And I think a lot of people can get in their own heads. And more than anything, I just like challenge people to actually push themselves out of their comfort zone and really try to punch above their, their weight class because there's nothing to lose. And I actually, in the early days of, of when I first started using Twitter, I used to go and tweet people shamelessly. And, and by having it public, like people would always uh, respond because they can't have a reply on their message saying like, hey, like I, I'm, I'm not going to respond to this aspiring uh, entrepreneur or venture capitalist, whatever it might be. And so I was always pretty shameless. I, I realized like pretty early on I had nothing to lose. And even to this day, like I send a ridiculous amount of cold emails to people and, and always try and be receptive whenever I get cold emails as well. And my own little rule for myself is when I get to inbox zero, I basically reward myself with sending out five cold emails to people that like I want to meet. <laughs> and I continue to do that every single chance that I can. Yeah, that's awesome. Can you talk a little more about the role that cold outreach played in breaking into venture just because you've been at Ludlow for more than four years now. You got into it at an unusually early age. And I think that also ties into your relationship with Eric. Got a couple questions from him as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for me, cold outreach has basically been like my entire career. I'm based in Detroit. I'm not based in a major ecosystem. And so I've realized pretty early on, I wasn't just going to naturally serendipitously walk into rooms with other VCs or founders or whatever it might be. Like, yes, there there is venture capital here in, in Michigan. And yes, there are founders. But when I'm not in a huge density of them, it, it's much more unlikely that I'm going to meet them. And so yeah, I just was super shameless in reaching out to people early on. Almost every one of my internships, it was basically from cold outreach. Like, SpaceX, I cold messaged someone on LinkedIn, the manager that eventually hired me. NASA, I reached out to the hiring manager over Twitter. In General Assembly, I, I, I reached out to Nathan Bachez. And, and then for Ludo, actually, I tweeted to Jonathan, one of the partners, and, and I was like, hey, I'd love to intern for you my, my senior year of college. And thankfully, Ryan Hoover stepped in and, and replied and was like, hey, you have to take a meeting with him. He's great. <laughs> and thankfully, Jonathan responded. But again, it all comes back to Twitter and me just putting myself out there. I think I was super aware that like it did take some level of risk of me putting myself out there. But at the end of the day, it really didn't matter. Like, what was the worst case scenario? And that's what I always tried to remind myself was like, worst case scenarios, they don't respond. And I'm at point zero <laughs> where I am right now. And so I always was just like, you know what, I'm just going to reach out. And for Ludo specifically, when I met with Jonathan and Brett, they were basically like, hey, we'd love for you to intern or work at one of our portfolio companies. And I was like, no, 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 I want to work with you. And they were basically like, yeah, we're not hiring. And I was like, cool. Well, can I just have a Ludo Ventures email address and I'll just try and reach out to people cold and, and take meetings and whatever else. And I'll just send you my notes from those meetings. And, and thankfully they were receptive to that. And then I started to spend more time with them and came down two days a week while I was in college. And yeah, I again, tried to go back to what Eric had told me of when someone gives you a chance, give it 250% because you don't know when you're going to get another chance. And so that's how I've always sort of just approached all of this is let's just keep running and, and give it my all and prove myself that like when someone does take a, a risk or a bet on you, make sure that it's worth taking for them. And I think that background is really important to understand as far as what you guys do at Ludlow. This is for Merrick. What is the <laughs> secret sauce behind the incredible reputation of Ludlow? And are there advantages of being a VC in Detroit? 
Eric is going to get like a gift basket from me for saying that. But <laughs> I, I think the truth is there is definitely a ton of advantages to, to being in Detroit. I think there's probably equal parts disadvantages as well, but it's not that different than even with like Chris Saka, how he used to take meetings up in Truckee because it was just a better place for him to stay grounded and just get to see like the real side of entrepreneurs. I think something that we feel really confident in is we've always done Zooms and, and Hangouts and video calls and we feel very confident in the fact that we're just able to get a real authentic look at, at founders. I think we approach our conversations with founders very different than most VCs, at least in my own opinion. Um, and, and I think it's purely off of like, let's actually become friends first and foremost, whether we invest or don't invest, like let's actually just talk about life. <laughs> and, and I think that's uh, a lot of how we initially approach things and let, let's just be humans. I think we feel very grounded in the fact that we are super fortunate to, to have this opportunity and have this role and we never take that for granted. I think we talk a ton on our website about how like we're VCs without egos and whatever else, but the truth is we couldn't even have egos if we wanted to here in Michigan. Like no one knows what a venture capitalist is. <laughs> um, like it, and it's more like you're not a doctor or a lawyer type of thing here. And so I think for us, we just feel super lucky that we're able to have this opportunity. And again, we never really take it for granted. And I think when we become good friends with the people that we invest in, we're able to really understand where we can add value and, and where maybe we can complement their skill set or whatever it might be. And it ultimately comes back to like, this is a service business and we work for our founders. And, and thankfully, it sounds like we have a good reputation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I guess to tie things back to something that we were talking about earlier, this is a tweet from, I believe it was last month, it was February 12th, just wow, quote tweeting, that kid, Ivan Ye's video <laughs> application to intern for 100 Thieves. How did that play into your thinking of where you've come with 100 Thieves and kind of how mainstream gaming now is? That tweet is one of the craziest things I've ever seen of, of someone just hustling. I think it goes back to an even just the earlier part of this conversation where it's like, really put yourself out there and there is zero risk, right? Like for Ivan to, to put this out there, worst case scenario is that like no one sees it and, and it's like, okay, you're at point zero again. Maybe he wasted a couple hours of, of work, but I think that the truth is, people don't really put themselves out there enough. And, and I joke with Jackson Dahl, who works at, at 100 Thieves, a, a bunch about this, but like people will always message uh, me or him or whatever else and be like, hey, I have a question or like, hey, can I intern for X, Y, and Z company? But it's like, just show, you know, like show that you're scrappy and illustrate why, why you would be good for that job. And even when there isn't a job, make that job for yourself by demonstrating, I think is really powerful. And I think for Ivan, in this case, it really just showed like he's passionate, he understands the brand and, and whatever else. And going back to your other question of just how far gaming has come, I think for me, when we were first investing in 100 Thieves and, and working with Natechat in the really early days, like it's bizarre to me because I've always been really invested into this world out of personal interests. And I've always actually been a fan of Nate Chad and his content. I've been following him for forever. And so 
when we were going through what a company would actually look like for 100 Thieves, it was always like clear to me that this was going to become bigger, but it, it doesn't make sense to me these days of like how big the reach is of these creators and just the brand itself, like people camping out for apparel and, and things like that is just, it will always be surreal to me, especially because yeah, this has all come a super long way. And and if nothing else, Nechat took a huge risk from his side of, of going into this world. And I'm super fortunate that it has played out well so far. Yeah, I think it is crazy to talk about how far gaming has come. And I feel like startup investing, kind of like gaming, has become much more popular where we see famous athletes like Serena Williams, someone like Nas, Angel Investing, Ashton Kutcher has his own firm. I definitely don't have the answer to this, but do you see any overlap in those two trends? Interesting. The overlap is only going to become more, I think, especially in gaming, right? Like with what's going on in the world today with NBA canceled and, and are suspended right now, you see a lot of huge NBA athletes or stars actually going and streaming themselves playing video games on Twitch. And it makes sense, right? Like in this generation grew up watching people play video games they all play video games themselves and it's just a very different dynamic than even a decade ago when kids were growing up and it was like no no no, like you're like a nerd if you play video games whereas like playing video games now is cool and and if you can make a lot of money playing video games and the fact that like we're seeing huge stars cross over into the world like Devin Booker playing with Nechad and whoever else like it's really awesome to see and I think Going back to just broader investing into seed stage or early stage companies, I think we will absolutely continue to see that happen. I think, again, going back to like, if you have distribution, if you have an audience, you can use that as an opportunity to win deals and get yourself into really amazing companies. And that's a really big upper hand. I think we're seeing it within just a rise of even early stage venture partners who are more acting like celebrities or look closer to celebrities than just uh, traditional venture capitalists because they're focusing so much on their brand or their content or whatever it might be. And I think it makes a ton of sense that actual celebrities from traditional media or traditional sports would cross over into this world as well because they have the opportunity to invest in these companies. Yeah. Just thinking about other trends in venture, does seeing something like all of these founders in Front's most recent RAND, does that make you worried at all as an investor? No, I, I think it makes me excited. Honestly, I think it's amazing that we are seeing these founders be invested in by others or just like founders doing more angel investing and, and supporting the ecosystem. I think there's a question of like, can another Sequoia or Benchmark or USV or whatever it might be like be started today? And I honestly don't know the answer to that because I think deals today are much more attributed to the individual person and the individual person we see for the most part is jumping between firms. And, and so like that is a bigger, broader question. And so it makes sense why we're seeing a rise of angel investors as well, who are just like, hey, we're going to actually just start my own fund one day. And then I think that's why we're starting to see a bunch of these smaller funds start up. But yeah, I, I think it's exciting and, and it's a great thing overall within the ecosystem. Yeah, absolutely. And then for Ludlow, you have your own email address in your <laughs> Twitter profile. Is there an email from Outfander in a specific space that you would love to wake up to tomorrow? Oh, that's a good question. Honestly, I just love meeting interesting people who have 
great stories or reasons for why they're building what they're building. And I think my favorite part about venture overall is like learning about spaces or opportunities that I never would have even thought existed. And I think that will be like any founder working on something that isn't necessarily super exciting, or maybe it is super exciting from an outside perspective, but I, I love learning about new spaces. And so I'm always happy to, to talk with anyone working on something new and exciting. So, yeah. And then just a final tweet here to tie into a question that we always ask our guests. It's from January 25th of this year. What's your podcast subscription list look like? Are there any books or podcasts that have played a large role in your life? Oh, interesting. I mean, I listen to a lot of podcasts. Uh, I listen to a lot of Patrick O'Shaughnessy. I listen to a lot of Joe Rogan, Knowledge Projects with Shane Parrish. I used to love Gimlet and, and I still listen to Reply All a bunch. But I, I also listen to just more comedy stuff as well. Like I listen to David Dobrik's podcast with Jason Nash almost every week. That's probably the only podcast I listen to uh, religiously. And then I also listen to a ton of Conan O'Brien's podcasts and, and Tim Ferriss. So I listen to a wide variety of podcasts. I think for me, I'm much more of a specific episode listener than even just a specific podcast listener. And, and, and so that's, the biggest thing that I've sort of reflected. I, I used to be like, I'm only going to listen to these like five podcasts. And then it's been much more of like, you know what, I, I should really just handpick the ones that interest me and, and dive deeper on those episodes or people. So those are sort of the ones that I would recommend to people. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah, this is something that Ellie Hamed actually brought up on Invest Like the Best. So I'm just going to ask her right now, how much do you think your Twitter account is worth? Oh, man. <laughs> uh it depends on the buyer, right? Like I think the, the the buyer is super important. I don't think I would ever sell my Twitter account for basically any amount of money. I think the truth is, it, even if someone took over the account tomorrow, I don't think it would necessarily perform well unless they just basically like thought like me, I guess. Like, um, so I, I don't know. I, I, I guess I would say both priceless, but also zero because I think in the wrong person's hands, it, it means nothing. You know, like there's, you could go buy an account probably on some shady website with like 50,000 followers, but those 50,000 followers might not necessarily know or, or be following that for any reason that you want, like for whatever messages you're broadcasting. And so at least for me, I've always optimized for quality versus quantity. <laughs> and I've always tried to go super deep on relationships within Twitter. And, and that's how I've met so many amazing people is just by like investing in those relationships through social capital. So yeah, I, I, I don't know. It, it's definitely priceless, I would say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You can buy followers, but you can't buy Blake Robbins hustle. Blake, where can people find you? <laughs> On Twitter at Blake IR or my email is Blake at lovedoventures.com. But yeah, I'd feel free to DM me on, on Twitter or tweet me or whatever it might be. I try and be super responsive. Awesome. We'll link to both of those in the show notes. Blake, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you. This has been Ethan Lee Tyson with Worth. You can find show notes below or at worth.card.co. That's card with two R's. Thanks for your time.